Well, unless you were here last Sunday, or pardon me, last Easter Sunday, uh, you will never know what I'm about to confess to you. I always make this confession uh, every Easter. You would never guess it, so I won't even, you know, let you try. I don't like to preach on Easter Sunday. Now, I know you would never expect a preacher to say that. And I love Resurrection Sunday. It's a great opportunity to really count the cost, what it costs God to redeem us. But the reason I don't like to preach on Resurrection Sunday is I know I can't, I can't get there. I mean, this is one of the occupational hazards of being a preacher. You know when you preach about Jesus Christ, particularly about His crucifixion and resurrection, you realize you just cannot get there. You can't get the event big enough in the, in the hearts and minds of the people that you're speaking to. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so, you know, anytime a preacher stands in the pulpit, he's always falling on the Holy Spirit. I can't teach you anything. I can't impart anything to you unless the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. But I don't, you know, it's like we should just lay on our face for 40 minutes and just worship this awesome God. And what He's done, this, this, this inexpressibly awesome thing that He's done in our behalf. I have a lot of theology books in, in my office, as you might suspect. If you've ever been in a pastor's office, you usually see a lot of theology books. You know, we like to show off how many books we haven't read and, and we should read, but we haven't read yet. And, you know, I, I make this confession each Easter too. You know, I, I go through these books and I, I look for the, the perfect quote about, about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And several years ago, I realized there's not one. <laughs> there's, there's not a perfect quote about this. It's too big. It's too big. The perfect quote is unquotable, right? It's inexpressible, unspeakable wonder and awe. It's beyond the, the language of angels and men to speak about how awesome how awesome Jesus is and what this awesome thing that He's done. It's an astonishing thing. The perfect quote would be unquotable. And as you've heard me say before, those of you who've been around, let the whole created order and every creature in it stand in awe of this great incarnate God who's been crucified, who's been buried, who has risen, who is reigning, who is ruling, and who will return for His people. Let the whole created order stand in awe of this great God. That's the reason I like Easter. <laughs> it's full of wonder. It's full of joy for the true, for the born-again believer. Now, I'm not talking about religious people. I'm not even talking about religious Christians. They don't get it. They don't understand it. I'm talking about the born-again who have God alive in their hearts. And they're in awe on this particular day. I am has been nailed to a tree. Elohim has allowed His puny little creatures to scourge Him and crucify Him. This is the most astonishing thing that has ever happened in all of the cosmos. As one of my former elders used to say, 
It is unbelievable. Now, you know, if it's just dogma to you, okay. But if you believe it, if it's real to you, if He's alive in your heart, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable that He would love us like this. And He would come for us like this. If you're not in awe, you've not really heard it, you've not really understood it, and I know for sure you've not really believed it. If you're not full of wonder and awe, when you contemplate the crucifixion of God, the burial of God, and the resurrection of God. You remember how God says it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Indeed, how shall any escape who reject Jesus Christ? After all He has done, this, this radical um, condescension of God to come for His people. We've talked about it many times. There aren't a hundred ways to God. There aren't ten ways to God. There aren't five ways to God. There aren't two ways to God. There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. And beloved, we have the truth. We have the Gospel. We have the revelation of God. And we're to be out in the world giving witness. That's what, that's what today's about. Giving witness. That's why you're still here. You're not still here just to you know, have fun and get a career and have a lot of money and buy a bunch of stuff. Some of you may do those things. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But if you're a Christian... The reason you're really still here is to be a witness. To be a witness that He is risen. To be a witness in the world. So, we celebrate the resurrection of our great God. And as we do, it seemed good to me that we would first remember the cross. Without the cross, of course, there is no resurrection. Some of you remember Mel Gibson's movie that came out some years ago, The Passion of the Christ. How many of you, you guys, I'm sure everybody, yeah, maybe it's got some age on it now, but uh, I'm sure most people have seen this movie. And you may remember when it came out, uh, critics said it was anti-Semitic. Right? You remember that? Well, who killed God? What does the Bible say? Who killed God? The Jews? Yes! It's what the Bible says. The Gentiles? Yes! It's what the Bible says. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. But preeminently, beloved, and I want you to hear me on this, preeminently, this was God's plan. This was God's plan. Peter said it perfectly in Acts 2.23 as he preached to the Jews. He said, this man, talking about Jesus Christ, Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a tree. I love that verse. It, it, it contains the mystery of God's sovereignty. Even in the sin of, of mankind, what men of their own free will meant for evil, God meant for good in this event. Men of their own free, depraved, rebellious will, they murdered God. And God of His own free, gracious, loving will redeemed His people. <laughs> it's awesome. It is awesome. Ultimately, God the Father delivered up His Son. Romans 8.32 
And ultimately, God the Son laid His life down of His own initiative. John 10, 18. It's important that we understand that. The crucifixion of God was God ordained. It was God decreed. It was God planned. It was God initiated. It was God's idea to save His people in this way. I want to make sure we understand it. Jesus didn't get backed up into a corner somehow and, and mistakenly end up on the cross. He was born for this. He came for this. It was the only way to redeem a people for Himself. We always need to understand that. So with resolute and unwavering premeditation, Jesus came to go to the cross. So why is God allowing Himself to be scourged and crucified? Because He loves His people. Because He's the Good Shepherd. You heard me pray it. He's the Good Shepherd. If you read John chapter 10, the word there in the Greek is kalos. It's the word from which we get the word kaleidoscope. He's the beautiful shepherd. And he lays his life down for his sheep. He willingly lays his life down for his sheep. It's awesome. What a beautiful, what a beautiful gospel. This beautiful shepherd, he puts himself between the enemy and us. He puts Himself between Satan and sin and death and hell and judgment and He saves us utterly and completely. Jesus says, no one takes My life, but I lay it down for My people. I lay it down for My sheep. No man, no army of men, no demon, no army of demons could take His life. He willingly laid it down. Why? for the glory of His Father and for the redemption of His bride. It's a beautiful story, beloved. It's a beautiful story. We'll worship forever. We'll worship for a billion eternities and never grow weary as we contemplate this awesome thing that God has done in our behalf. Most of you remember that Pilate tried to play the middle with Jesus. It's the game that millions still try to play. Many who call themselves Christians. They belong to a church. They, they've done some yikes. They've done some religious stuff. Excuse me. There we go. They've done some religious stuff. They call themselves Christians. But they're still really trying to play the middle with God. They don't really want to give themselves away to Jesus. I just want to be religious. You know, in case this, the hell thing is real. I want to make sure I have checked my boxes here. And I need to be religious. It's good to be religious. I know God will be impressive if I go to church. If, I, if, if I'm on the, the church roll. Surely that's important to God. We have millions today still trying to play the middle with Jesus. Trying to find that religious spot. That, that lukewarm spot where I can still call myself a Christian but not really give myself to Jesus. Not really submit to His Lordship and His authority. You may remember that Pilate tried to repeatedly let Jesus go. He repeatedly said, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man, but to satisfy the bloodlust of the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, he had, he had Jesus scourged. Now if you saw The Passion of the Christ, Gibson's movie, it was very realistic. 
I'll uh, describe a Roman scourging to you. It was a brutal and hideous torture. The Romans used a whip of braided leather strips that had metal balls and pieces of sharp bone or metal shards woven into the ends of these strips. The balls would cause contusions upon the flesh and the, uh, the uh, sharp bone and metal shards would, would open up these contusions. It would rip them open. So God would have been tied to a post and He would have been lashed 39 times. His shoulders, His back, His buttocks, and His upper legs would have been laid bare. Again, if you saw the movie, you'll remember how vivid it was. Often in Roman scourging, the back was so shredded that parts of the ribs, spine, veins, muscles, and even organs would be exposed. Historians tell us that many men died from a scourging. I am is allowing His puny, little, fallen, rebellious, made-of-dust creatures scourge Him. Why? That He might redeem His bride. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. He loves His people with an everlasting love, a God-sized love. He is the Good Shepherd. He joyfully lays down His life. He joyfully lays down His life of His own initiative, He says in John chapter 10. You guys know the great text, Isaiah 53.5. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. John 19, two, uh, verses 2 and 3 tells us that after they scourged God, they put a crown of thorns on His head and they put a purple robe on Him and they mocked God and they hit God in the face. Matthew 27.30 tells us that they sped on God and they beat God on the head with a reed. In John 19.5 and 6, Pilate says, Behold the man! And you remember the chief priests in the crowd cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! John 19.15, Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar! So the Jews have utterly rejected their Messiah. Utterly and completely. John 19.17 tells us that Jesus carried His own cross beam to Golgotha. This is an astonishing thing to me after a scourging. So let me tell you what would happen after He was pronounced guilty. There would be four Roman soldiers around him and they would march him through the city. Many of you have been to Jerusalem. You've walked this, this, uh, this pathway. And there would be a soldier in front of Jesus that would, with a placard that would, would, would name his crime. Who remembers what the crime of Jesus was? He was king of the Jews. Well, this is no crime at all! He is king of the Jews. He's king of heaven and earth. He's king of the cosmos. He's your king whether you bow your knee or not in this life. He is your king. You know, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that even the damned will bow their knee to King Jesus. Even the damned in hell will bow their knee to King Jesus. He is king. He is king. This is no crime. This is the truth. So they marched him through the city to the place of execution. Historians tell us that, that 
crucifixion was so horrible that, that men had to be dragged there. But Jesus didn't have to be dragged there. He did not have to be dragged there. Isaiah 53.7 tells us, He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to slaughter. John 19.17.18 tells us, They took Jesus to Golgotha and there they crucified Him. So let's just talk about that for a minute. First, they stripped God completely naked. Then the Romans laid Him down on a cross, uh, on a cross beam and they nailed seven-inch spikes through His wrists. And then they would hoist God vertically and they drove spikes through His feet. And if you saw the movie as the vertical beam was, was, was pushed over into the hole, when, when the beam hit the bottom of a hole with a thud, God's shoulder blades would have been thrown out of joint. It's a very realistic depiction in the movie. Gibson's movie. Let me just read what a crucifixion is. Uh, an excerpt I took from a book. Let me just read it to you. Once a victim is hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest in the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the victim must push up on his feet so the tension on the muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the victim would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he'd have to push, up him, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his raw back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on until complete exhaustion would take over, and the victim would, uh, would not be able to push up any longer and therefore would be unable to breathe and he would die. In a crucifixion, the entire nervous system is racked with pain. Bones are pulled out of joint. Ligaments and muscles are stretched beyond endurance. Restriction of blood flow, uh, blood flow creates an acute sense of oppression upon the chest. Dehydration, fever, pounding headache, and the scorching Middle Eastern sun, and stinging and biting insects feasting upon open wounds. This was the crucifixion of God. It was the slow destruction and annihilation of, the ma of a man. Those of you who've been around for a few years, you know that I always remind you about on this occasion about the word excruciating. You guys know the word excruciating, right? It's from the Latin. The prefix ex just means intense. The root cruciati means to crucify. That's what excruciating means. It was so horrible that they came up with a word for it. To crucify. To crucify. So I want to pause just for a minute and make sure that you and I understand what all this is about. <laughs> you know what it's about, right? It's about your sin. And it's about my sin. That's what the execution of God is about. Your sin is and my sin. Many, many uh, today reject the bloody cross. It's offensive to them. They like a, a religion that's full of pomp and ceremony and is proper. But beloved, without the bloody cross, we have no hope. If we understand the message of the Bible, without the bloody cross, we have 
no hope. In fact, the cross gives us some small insight into how ugly our sin is to God. God is dreadfully provoked at the rebellion of His creatures. God's not just a little myth that you're sin. God is dreadfully provoked. If you read your Bible, you understand that God is not ashamed to talk about His wrath. If you read the the Old Testament, you see that 16 times when God mentions His wrath, He puts the adjective fierce in front of it. God is dreadfully provoked at the rebellion of His creatures. And He will punish His enemies. This is the message of the Bible. We get some sense. If we look at the cross, we get some sense of how infinitely heinous, monstrous, and horrific our sin is before God. I know that doesn't fall easily on modern ears. We think so lightly about our sin. I have grace! Listen, beloved, if you think you can sin because you have grace, you don't have grace. You've not yet experienced true grace or you would not presume upon it. Yes, we sin as Christians, but we don't presume upon grace. When we sin, we hate it. We confess it. We repent. And we get up and we walk with Jesus again. We don't presume on God's grace. Jonathan Edwards in that famous sermon, the men have studied this in Bible study, his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says, you know, if it had only been said the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful. But the Bible says the fierce wrath of God. Who can conceive what such expressions carry in them? And then he says this, Who can know the fullness and the power of God's anger? Who can know? Beloved, someone tell me, who can know the power of God's anger? Jesus Christ can. He took it all. He took all the wrath of God that I deserved. He took every bit of it. And if you're a Christian today, He took the wrath you deserve. He's an awesome God. Beloved, I tell you this all the time. Don't you dare live your Christianity in some small, careful, religious, lukewarm way. Don't you dare. This is a a radical redemption. And it demands a radical response. And that's exactly what we're called to in the Bible. Christians are called to a radical response. We are called to be disciples, not church members. We may be a church member, and that's okay. But if that's all we are, we don't know Him. We've never met Him. Because if we knew Him, we'd love Him. If we'd met Him, we'd love Him. And even as He gave Himself away to us, we would give ourselves away to Him. This is, this is biblical, biblical Christianity. Isaiah 53.10 But God was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief to render Him a guilt offering. Beloved, let me just challenge you. Are you still playing with some sin in your life? Consider the cross. Consider the cross and think again. Jesus was our guilt offering. I love 2 Corinthians 5.21 He the Father made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. From enemies to co-heirs. Don't you love it? 
from dust, disassembled particles of dust, from dust to sons and daughters of the king. How can we live it small? Pray tell. How can we live it small, beloved? Shame on us if we settled for some kind of small expression. You know, of keeping our head down, just being careful, going to church, that's, that's the sum and substance of my Christianity. Beloved, we're called to infinitely more than this. We're called to infinitely more than this. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say, and I don't want you to ever forget it. What God's justice and holiness demanded, God's love provided on the cross. You know, the cross is a, is a, it's a study in the attributes of God. Every attribute of God is there. But preeminently, we see the wrath of God. And we see the grace of God. Jesus took the wrath of God that I might be uh, the recipient of the grace of God. Just look at the bloody, brutal, savage, excruciating cross and you will understand how ugly your sin is before God. Isaiah 53.6, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. What an awesome thing. We know that Jesus was alive on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., a total of six hours. Matthew 27.45 tells us that darkness fell on the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. The darkness was symbolic of, of God's curse falling on the Lamb when our sins were laid upon Him. So the Father turns His back on the Son. And He becomes sin. My sin. And if you're a Christian, He becomes your sin. And He takes the wrath of God that we so richly Deserve. We've talked a little bit about Jesus' physical suffering, but I, my, it's always been my contention that His emotional and spiritual suffering infinitely eclipses His physical suffering. From an eternity past, a billion eternities past, He'd been in perfect fellowship and harmony and, and love relationship with the Father. But that was broken. That was broken on the cross when He took my sin upon Himself. This would have been Jesus' greatest anguish. The emotional and spiritual suffering as He was separated from His Father. Matthew 27.46 reads, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Father answers the Son. And immediately the darkness is dispelled, symbolizing the Father's full acceptance of Jesus' atoning sacrifice for His people. And the veil was rent, the earth shakes, the rocks split, and the tombs are opened. What an awesome, awesome thing. John 19.30 tells us that God shouts, It is finished! And this is not the cry of a defeated martyr. This is the cry of victory. It is finished. It is done. He has saved His people. 
Luke 23.46 records His last words on the cross. Father, into Thy hands I commit My Spirit. Matthew 27.50 tells us that He yielded up His Spirit. Again, I want to emphasize, nobody took His life. Nobody took His life. He laid it down. He laid it down. John 10.18 Jesus said, I have authority to lay My life down. Oh, and what? What else He has authority to do? Anybody remember? I have authority to take it up again. That's why we're here, right? <laughs> if He hadn't taken it up, we wouldn't be here. We'd probably be good little secular somethings. But He did take it up. Our great, awesome, good shepherd. He did take it up. We're not here worshiping a, a dead Jewish carpenter. We're here to worship the living God. The living God who died for His people and rose again. Parenthetically, I just want to say I'm not going to waste good pulpit time answering the skeptics who try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus. You've heard them, I'm sure. Some contend that it was a mass hallucination. Yeah, that makes good sense. Some contend that Jesus just, just had a, a swooning spell on the cross. That He wasn't really dead. Yeah, that makes good sense too. Or that the disciples stole the body and they hid the body. And with all the effort of the Sanhedrin and, 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 and Roman authorities, the body was never found. Of course, the disciples stole the body. That's what happened. And then they went out and died for it. That's what happened. They stole the body. They pulled off a hoax. Then they went out and died for a hoax. That makes good sense. That happens all the time. That happens all the time. If you have problems with the resurrection and people, I, I, I don't understand it. I, 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 have a, I don't understand it. You know, but people have problems with, with the supernatural. And if you have problems with that, read this book. Uh, the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. You know, Strobel was an atheist. He was, I think, Yale-educated. He was a, an attorney. He ended up being an editor for the Chicago Tribune, I think, or the Times, or whatever. And his wife became a Christian. And obviously this was upsetting to him. <laughs> so he researched it all. Oh, guess what happens when he researched it all? Someone, you want to take a guess? Oh, he became a Christian. So if you have a problem with the resurrection, just read this book. He... He, he talks about it a lot. It's, it's a good book. I commend it to you. I commend it to you. Strobel says, one of his conclusions is this, people just grasp at straws in trying to deny the resurrection. But nothing fits all the evidence better than the explanation that Jesus is alive. He concludes, I was ambushed by the evidence. It would require much more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible affirms that Jesus appeared no fewer than 11 times over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. There were many eyewitnesses. And if you're born again, you're a witness. That's the only reason God's left you here. You're a witness. Yes, He gives us subordinate joys and pleasures. He's a gracious God, a merciful God, a good God. 
He, he blesses us with subordinate pleasures. But our greatest pleasure is to share the truth, is to be a witness that God has come. And God is offering salvation to sinners. So I want to spend the last few minutes, just the last few minutes, and I want to talk about one of those appearances of Jesus that we find in the Bible. Real Christians don't believe He's risen because scholars and researchers can pile up evidence. We're, we're happy that researchers and, and scholars can pile up evidence. Go Lee Strobel, pile up more evidence. That's great. But that's not why I believe. You know why I believe. If you're a believer here, you know, you know why believers really believe. We believe for the same reason that Mary Magdalene believes. And it's what we see in John chapter 20. I don't know if you have your Bible, but you could turn with me there to John chapter 20. Just listen to this account. Jesus appears to, to Mary Magdalene. John 20, I'm going to begin at verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him, and I will take Him away. If we read the text here, we see that Mary is weeping for no good reason. She's weeping for no good reason. We see that she has much love, but she has no faith. Jesus told all of His people what? That He would what? He would come out of the grave. This is the astonishing thing to, to, to those of you who study your Bible. You realize none of His people believed it. None of them. They were all skeptics. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see that every one of them was a skeptic. Every one of them. Every single one of them. There's a great application for us here. Jesus is with Mary. She doesn't even recognize that Jesus is with her. What I want to say to you, beloved, in your distress, in your difficulty, in your trial, Jesus is with you. You say, well, I don't see Him. He's there. He's there. He was there with Mary. Probably one of those days, probably the most grief-filled day of her life. And He's there. She doesn't recognize Him. But He is, he is there. So why does Mary ultimately believe that Jesus has risen? Well, we could say, well, she, she physically saw Him, but she does not recognize Him. We could say that she talked to Him, but she still doesn't know it's Him. How does she come to the conclusion that He has uh, risen from the grave? What happens in the next verse? Someone tell me. What happened in the next verse? What does Jesus say in the next verse that seals the deal for Mary? What happens? 
He says, Mary. And those of you who were born again, you've heard, you've heard your name called. And nobody can say your name like your Creator and your Redeemer can say your name. You've heard it. If you've met Him, you've heard it. And immediately, she knew it. He's risen. That's why I know He's risen, beloved. I don't need Lee Strobel to pile up a bunch of evidence. Yay, Lee Strobel. But I know it because He's said my name. He's called me into relationship. Jim! Come! I'm your God. I'm your Redeemer. Come and receive the joy and the fullness of the life I've, I've purchased for you. Beloved, this is why Christians believe. It's supernatural. Of course it's supernatural. God is supernatural. <laughs> he's all in the natural, but He's supernatural, beloved. This is why the true believer believes. This is why. We, we love it when scholars you know, bring forth evidence. That's great. Study on. Bring more evidence. It'll help the skeptics. But I'm not a skeptic. He's called my name. And Mary's not a skeptic. Mary's not a skeptic anymore. She has heard Him call her name and nobody could say it like Him. You remember what Jesus told the religious leaders over in John chapter 10? Well, as He told the parable about the Good Shepherd, He said, I call My sheep by name. They know My voice. And again, if you're a believer, you get that. You understand that. Jesus said over in John 10, He says, I know My own. My own know Me. They hear My voice and they do what I say. They follow me. Again, true Christianity. We know what he told the religious leaders over there in John 10.26. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Now I know, it when, I know that when God speaks like that, there are many in the church who hate it when God speaks like that, but this is how God speaks. He says to the religious men, you don't believe because you're not mine. You don't believe because you're not mine. Mary recognizes the voice of her God. And she believes. So here we are, 2,000 years later, worshiping. Worshiping our beautiful warrior, shepherd. Beloved, Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus is who the Bible says He is. He is I Am. He is I Am. And He's come to redeem people for Himself. And every moral creature in the universe will bow their knee to King Jesus when He returns. Every moral creature will bow the knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And as I said to you earlier, even the damned will confess that Jesus is Lord. And though most of the world believes we are hopeless simpletons because we believe the Bible, thinking that we worship a dead Jewish carpenter, much of the world using His name as a slang or a curse word, but we know who He is. He is the warrior shepherd. 
He is the good shepherd. He is our creator. He is our redeemer. We know what He's done. We know He's laid His life down for us. And we know He's coming back, Revelation 22.12. And all, that slay, all the slaying words uh, and curse words against Jesus Christ, it will stop when the great men will cry out that the mountains would fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Soon it will stop. Soon it will stop, beloved. The world cursing our God, ridiculing our God, using our God's name as a slang word. It will stop soon when Jesus splits the sky. So happy Resurrection Day, Christian. Hallelujah! Amen? Hallelujah! What a great God! What a great God! What a great Gospel! What a great gospel. I want to close. I'm just going to read quickly for you. If you want to turn with me, Revelation 5. Revelation 5. Yeah, Jesus came. He was born in a manger. He lived among men humbly. But next time He comes, it won't be like that. <laughs> and so I just want to read. I want you to have a, a vision of who Jesus is now. So I just want to read from Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it uh, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the, the twenty-four elders, they fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for, for God with thy blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 10. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and, uh, and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures. And the elders, and the number, the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and, and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Hallelujah! He's our King, our great God, our great Redeemer, our great King. Beloved, don't you dare live it small.
but you dare live it small. You go out in the world, you be a witness to this great God. You be a witness to this great God. We're going to celebrate the table tonight. So, I pray you've been preparing your heart. I, I trust you've seen the, the elements here. We have open communion here. All who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have followed Him in believers' baptism, you are welcome to partake of the elements. The way we do it is we'll play a song give you time to prepare your heart. A song will last four minutes or so. During the song, as you're ready, come up and take the cup, take the, the, the bread, just go back to your seat. Don't partake of the elements. After the song is ended, I'll stand and I'll read a text and then we will partake at that time. Okay? Any questions? Prepare your hearts. And it's, my, it's incumbent upon me as, your, as the spiritual leader here, as the pastor of this church, we know what Paul told the Corinthians, don't come to the table in an unworthy manner. Confess your sin. Come clean with God. Renew your commitment to the Lord. Come and celebrate what this awesome God has done in our behalf. So let's worship our great King as we celebrate the table together.